This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? And his name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett coming to you from the home office. That is the CBS Bureau here in Washington, D.C., third floor, my office. We're kind of getting used to this place to hang out and shoot the show. It's working out very well for us. So a little bit of politics, a little bit of policy, a little bit of sports this week. We had sports a lot of it last week with Jamie Yukas in Beijing. But there are not too many members of Congress who play professional sports and get elected to Congress. Colin Allred is our guest. He did both. He's in the House of Representatives now. He's in his Dallas-based district. Congressman, it's good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be with you. I'm sorry that we're not at one of our favorite restaurants doing this, but this is just as good. The next time we will do that. Um, So let's get some things out of the way. Did you watch the Super Bowl, your reaction? And for those who don't know, explain that you played in the league and have some sense of what those players on both sides of the scrimmage line felt when that game was over Sunday night. Yeah, I watched it. Um, I thought it was a great game. I I thought it was two really evenly matched teams, um, which is really saying something because, you know, the Bengals, <laughs> what were they, you know, won four games a year ago, you know, and um, it, it says a lot about them. And they've got a really exciting young team. So to me, I don't think they should feel too down about having lost this game. Um, well, the Rams, you know, they kind of went all in. They had so many star players. Uh, but as a defensive guy, I, I really I really have to say that I thought Aaron Donald should have been the, the MVP. Right. If you – you know, everything else that happened was possible because of what he did with his pass rush, his disrupting ability. And, you know, it's just um, he's the best player in the NFL to me. And, uh, I, you know, from my career um, playing linebacker, the way the league has gone, uh, especially with defending the pass, has gotten so much harder that if you can't rush the passer, then it's just over. I mean, they're just going to be able to pick you apart, you know. And so. I played with some really great defensive linemen like Javon Curse and Kyle Vandenbosch and Albert Hainsworth. Um, and for a while there, we had kind of a monstrous defensive line too. And so I don't think it's a coincidence when you look through recent Super Bowls that a lot of them have those kind of studs up front. And that's what, that's what the Rams had. Defense, as it is often said, wins games. And if my memory serves correctly, not many defensive players have ever been MVP of a Super Bowl. There's one amazing bit of trivia Related to the Super Bowl, Chuck Howley was the MVP of the Super Bowl. I think it was five Colts against 
Cowboys. The Cowboys lost that game. Chuck Howley played for the Cowboys, and he was nevertheless the MVP of that game. I know that because I'm kind of a trivia nerd where the Baltimore Colts are uh, concerned, not the Indianapolis Colts, but I think I'm right on that. Wow, yeah. I mean, I think Von Miller yes. also uh, you know, has been a defensive MVP, and I have to also just say a quick shout-out to Matthew Stafford because he's actually from my district. I uh, went to Highland Park High School here, and so <laughs> congratulations to him. Detroit was rough, but you got a Super Bowl. So, And for those who don't have a sense of it, because you lived this life in the NFL, you were on a taxi squad, you were a free agent draftee, you weren't drafted in the regular. You know how hard it is just to make the 53, yeah. the essential number to be on an NFL roster, and then to have a successful season, meaning plus 500 in your record, then to make it to even to the first round of the playoffs, then to make it all the way through – Talk to the audience about the journey all these players went through. Well, you know, it's even tougher because they've added an additional game. Um, and I remember the best season that we had when I was with the Titans, we went 13-3. and three, uh, We were the number one seed. And then we lost. We had a bye in the first round, and we lost in a, at a last-second play against the Ravens. And we fumbled like three times inside the five-yard line. We should have beat them. And we had beaten the Steelers like week 15 – Ravens lost to Steelers. Steelers went to the Super Bowl. They won the Super Bowl. So I always say that we would have won the Super Bowl that year had we uh, gotten past that. Right. Um, but, you know, physically, it's such a grind to get to that point. Um, but mentally, you know, you could tell uh, that those players were 100% just locked in. And you're right. I mean, it's 53 players on the team. It's 45 dressing out on game day. And so you look on a college football sideline, you'll see 100 people, you know, in uniform. Anybody who's stepping on the field in an NFL game is really, really good. And also, of course, you have to say there's a little bit of luck uh, coming into at the end of a season that long to have stayed healthy, uh, to have gotten that far. You had to have a few bounces break your way. And so, you know, as, as much as um, I think the harder you work, the luckier you get, they definitely had a little bit of luck to get there. One other thing I want to talk to you about, because you're a defensive player, you were in the league, Eric Weddle. Mm -hmm. Eric Weddle played in the league for many years, then he retired, stayed in shape, gets a call from the Rams on the cusp of the playoffs. He hadn't played in more than a season, I think nearly two. Uh -huh. On the cusp of the playoffs, he's reactivated. He's out there on Sunday. He's now a Super Bowl champion. Yeah, I'm unbelievable. I mean, you know, what a, what a great thing for him and to stay in shape. But, you know, Eric was such a smart player. I played against him um, when he was with the Ravens, I'm pretty sure. Or, no, it's the Chargers. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, he was such a smart player. Uh, there's He's the kind of guy who could walk into a locker room and pick up the defense quickly uh, and and do a job, you know. And the, the funny thing about football is as you get older, the game slows down for you mentally, but your body slows down, you know. And there are a few guys who are special enough that their body either slows down more slowly or just doesn't at all. And Eric seemed like one of those guys where he didn't really seem much different from like year five to year, you know, 10 or 12. And so congrats to him. <laughs> and, and Colin, if, if I can call you that, please. Yeah. Um, for the purposes of a sports conversation, I'm going to call you Colin. For a political conversation, yeah. I'll call you Congressman. How about that? Yeah. We'll, we'll split it that way. So in this sports conversation, talk to my audience about something that we hear all the time as football fans, that there's a difference between being in shape and being yeah. in football shape. What does that mean? <laughs> Yeah. Well, first of all, running around with pads on and uh, at the intensity level of a game, I mean, you really can't simulate it. And, you know, there's just all the offseason training, all of that is great, but it's not until you get into, 
you know, training camp and preseason games and early season games that you really start getting into that football shape. And, and to go through a full game, uh, you know, fully padded and, and with all the hits you're going to take, I mean, uh, I think it's a, a level of conditioning that's different from other sports because it's not like it's a long distance running thing. Um, but there's kind of a, you know, a, 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 a toughness that's built up, but also just a, getting used to that extra weight, the extra burden of always pushing on someone else, someone pushing on you, you know, it, it really wears you out. And so you can be in fantastic shape. You could run, you know, a 10K, you could be somebody who's a, a great sprinter and you could go out in a football game and be gassed because someone's pushing against you. And the closest thing I can say is it's like wrestling. You know, if you, you know how good of shape wrestlers are in, uh, it's a similar thing because there's somebody pushing and pulling on you for the entire time. And you're having to use muscles you might not be used to. One last thing. Those who watch the game closely remember that Eric Weddle had a tackle early in the game, came up, started motioning towards his shoulder. They harnessed him and he was able to stay in the game. What's that? What's that about? Well, he, he might have dislocated a shoulder. He might have a shoulder separation. I mean, uh, you know, I, I separated both of these shoulders so, several times. There's some and, magic uh, that goes along on the sideline in the tent, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's amazing what tape and what these harnesses can do. I, he probably couldn't raise his hand over his head uh, after they did that. And so he probably was hoping he didn't have to, have to do an interception that way. Um, but you can get through the game. I'm, I'm sure Eric's feel, feeling it now, but he's probably happy with that, that ring. He got, so. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing whether or not you can raise your hand or not is kind of irrelevant. If you know, there's going to be a Super Bowl ring on it eventually. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it has been said that one of the most surprising statistics in NFL history is Dan Marino played in only one Super Bowl and he lost. Do you think Joe Burrow will be back? I do. He reminds me a lot of uh, Joe Montana. Um, I think he's got a real moxie about him. Uh, he's not the biggest guy. He's not the strongest guy. Um, but he he has he's, a, he's a, clearly a leader. Uh, and in his second year, to be kind of as advanced as he seems to be in the passing game, I think he's going to be just fine. In fact, I think the Bengals are going to be a real force. They, they need to get some help on their offensive line. They've got probably the best young receiver in the NFL. They've got a you know some other good you know weapons on offense, and they've got probably the best young quarterback in the NFL. And as you know, Major, there's two types of teams in the NFL. There's teams that have a franchise quarterback and those who want one, and they have one. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the dividing line. Colin Alred is our special guest. Segment two of the Takeout coming up on the other side of this break. I'm Major Gate. We'll see you in a second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that football interlude. Come on, we're going to talk football when we have a footballer on the show who actually happens to be a member of Congress. Colin Alred is our special guest Democrat from, what's the number of your district, uh, Congressman? Texas 32. Texas yeah, 32. Dallas. Uh, suburban yeah. Dallas, correct? Yes, sir. Okay. So uh, we are recording this on Tuesday, February 15th. I always let the audience know because they're going to be hearing this over the weekend. So... Yeah. Tuesday, February 15th. Write this down, folks. So if there's an invasion of Ukraine on Friday, we're not going to be topical on that. You got me? Okay. 
But we're going to talk about Ukraine because the congressman was just there. But if events overtake us, don't blame us. But what we can talk about is something very political. Today, Kathleen Rice, Democrat from New York, announced she would not seek re-election. That's the 30th Democrat in the House to not seek re-election. Twice as many Republicans who are in that category. So, Congressman, why are Democrats fleeing for the doors and does that guarantee your party and you, if you're reelected, will be in the minority come the next Congress? Well, you know, I, I think I honestly think that a lot of this has to do with, with redistricting. Um, we have seen districts go away. Uh, we've seen people be put into districts that they think are not as good of a match for them. And so, you know, I think you can chalk up a lot of that to that. But, um, but, but as yeah. you well know, there's some analysts who say, look, it hasn't turned out as bad as some Democrats right. feared that there have been court right. challenges and that some independent commissions overseeing this haven't drawn lines as hostily as some Democrats feared. So there's got to be something else. Yes. And I think the national picture is not as bad for the party, but for individuals, there are certainly, I can think of five or six folks right now, you know, GK Butterfield, for example, is, is just one that comes to mind who... The district may be winnable for Democrats, but he, it's not what his base was, and he felt like it was time for him to retire. Um, we also do have, uh, you know, a caucus that was aging and that was going to change. So I, that that all to one side, because I know that's, you know, that, that's not quite where you think we want to go with this. Um, you know, it, it's clear that you know we are facing, um, you know, a tough election coming up, and that we have to get uh, our very best team on the field. And there are some folks who may feel that, you know, they put so much energy into getting to this point uh, that, you know, that they're going to get off here. But, I, you know, we haven't seen anyone, at least that I'm aware of, except for maybe uh, one or two who are retiring in seats that we will lose because they are no longer there. Mm. Uh, they are largely retiring in blue seats that are going to remain blue, just going to be a different member representing them. And so I don't think that'll impact the balance. But, I, you know, I recognize that um, you know, the national kind of, um, uh, you know, talking point is that the House is going to be lost and that's why so many people are retiring. You know, I, I tend to disagree that that fight is over, uh, but, you know, I, I know that that's what the discussion is and maybe certain members are taking that into, into account too. So in November, the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, described the upcoming election, the midterm, as a 100-year storm. And some Republicans, perhaps on the excessively excitable end of the spectrum, are talking about 50-60 seat gain. Do you think that's plausible? And do you think your party is in that much trouble? Well, I, I don't think it's going to happen in part just because of redistricting. I, I don't think there are enough districts that are going to be uh, winnable and major. I, I actually don't think that's a good thing. I think we should have more competitive districts. Uh, and Republicans won a few seats that were unexpectedly competitive or maybe they were competitive and they and they eked out victories in 2020 right. meaning that there's less there are fewer seats to clean up from 2018 yeah, is my that, point. that's true and so i think the map is just very different you know you comparing a, a entirely new map for 2022 to 2020 is difficult because all the districts are different my district will be different you know than, than it was and uh, and you can go across the country and say that uh, you know and i think that we have to also recognize uh, this is a different version of the Republican Party, okay, uh, that we're dealing with. This is not the John Boehner and, and Paul Ryan crew. Uh, this is a crew that is extreme uh, and that has already said that, you know, I, I think most of their focus from what they're talking about they want to do uh, is revenge-based, you know, whether it's 
Hunter Biden or, you know, uh, trying to impeach President Biden or saying they want to make him have a cognitive test. It's not about what the American people want. And so what we have to do uh, in the coming months is talk about the really historic legislation that we have passed. The fact that the American Rescue Plan is why the economy right now is, is seeing historic lows in unemployment, historic lows in childhood poverty. Uh, and that the fact that you can go to your local CVS and get a shot and you know, get the vaccine and get the booster for free is because of the American Rescue Plan. And that we passed a historic infrastructure bill that multiple presidents and multiple congresses have tried to pass. And that every week I'm announcing new big projects coming to Texas. I just announced, I think yesterday, the day before, $60 million coming to Texas for electric vehicle charging stations. Talk about that. Uh, but then also, you know, identify that, you know, you can't compare us to the almighty, you know, compare us to the alternative. Uh, and, and these folks want to take us in a fundamentally different direction that is not going to be, you know, one that I think is best for the American people. And so, you know, I, I get it. I know folks are frustrated that we're still in this pandemic, uh, that we are still uh, not back to full uh, you know, normal life. Um, and we have to talk about inflation and, and what people are dealing with. You know, I was raised by a single mother who's a public school teacher. I know every single penny is being counted, you know, at, at around kitchen tables. We should talk about that. But we should talk about how our plans are better to address that than the alternative. So it's not hard, Congressman, to talk to Republicans in Washington, D.C., and they say, look, we have got a very simple four-word approach to the midterms. Four words, crime, inflation, wokeism, and the border, or border. Those are the four words. First question, how do you confront those four words, and what are your Democratic Party four words? Well, you know, as I said, I think we have to address what people are most concerned with, and I I do think that inflation and the economy – is where most people are. I think some of those others may fall into kind of the right wing echo chamber. I don't hear a lot about the border here in Dallas and I'm not at a, in a border state. Uh, you know, and, and I obviously we want to have comprehensive immigration reform. We want to try and, you know, address some of these things, but uh, it's not, uh, I, I don't think it's a top of mind issue. I think what people are worried about is that their kids are still having to come home from school uh, with COVID. Uh, that they're still frustrated around, you know, having to be in mass. They're still frustrated that we're still in this pandemic, that they mm-hmm. were hoping uh, that, you know, we would be out of this by now and we'd be back to normal life. And we have to recognize that. I think the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think for us, uh, you know, it has to be, uh, you know, that we are rebuilding, that we're rebuilding the country, we're rebuilding our economy, uh, that the economy is strong, uh, that even though, People are feeling higher prices, uh, you know, at every where they go. They're also making more money. Employment, unemployment is is much, you know, historically low. We're seeing employers have to really raise what they're offering in terms of wages, uh, so that yep. they can, you know, get people uh, in the door. Uh, that we're here for families because we recognize this has been a really hard uh, two years for families. I think as somebody who has a three-year-old and an almost one-year-old. I can tell you every time they have to come home from school and, and be home for a week because there was a COVID exposure is difficult. It's difficult for, yeah. for families. Yeah. yeah, there's a whole domino effect of that. How about crime and wokeism? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think great countries don't run away from uh, you know things that, they, that they're dealing with and they're fighting way, their way through. And I think this wokeism thing is going to backfire. We're an increasingly diverse country. Every election is the most diverse electorate we've ever had in this country. Uh, and if the Republicans want to run down this lane, of just pursuing a shrinking portion of the electorate and talking about what they're afraid of instead of what they're for, I don't think that's a long-term winning strategy. Even if it may, you know, deliver some benefits in certain districts, I don't think that's a national strategy. I think it's also why they 
have not won a national election uh, you know, in so long since my constituent, George W. Bush did, and he didn't do it on, on a message like that. So uh, you know, I, I think you know, certainly um, we all recognize that we want to continue to invest in, in public safety, uh, but the Democrats are doing that. We're the ones who sent you know, billions of dollars to local communities to keep cops on the job. It's the Republicans who voted against funding those things. Karen Bass, your colleague uh, in the House, is running for mayor of Los Angeles. She says that the idea of defunding the police is dead. Speaker Pelosi over the weekend said she agrees with that. Do you? Of course. I mean, first of all, we're the ones who are funding the police. Let's, let's be very clear about this, whether it's the you know, CARES Act uh, or the American Rescue Plan. Uh, we're the ones who've been sending resources to local communities to keep you know officers on the job that would have been fired. Let's be very clear. Uh, if those local communities had not had that federal funding because they would have had huge budget shortfalls and they would have had to make deep cuts in every sector, you know, including public safety. And so I find this, you know, the idea that, that we're trying to you know, take away resources to be kind of laughable, because even with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that we passed in the House and we couldn't get passed in the Senate, there were some on the left who criticized that bill uh, because it increased funding for things like uh, you know, uh, cameras, body cameras, training for police, you know, and so we want to make sure that we have a productive working relationships with our lo- local law enforcement, not take away any resources. That is the voice of Colin Allred, our special guest back for segment two, segment three, rather. I'm losing count, but I've got it back. Segment three of the takeout in just one second. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Colin Allred is our special guest, Democratic congressman from the great state of Texas. Suburban Dallas is his district, 32nd district, if I remember what he told me just a moment ago. I should. That's right. That's correct, isn't yes, it? Sir. That's yeah. right. Good. I, my memory holds. It's a perilous thing for me to do to rely <laughs> on my memory. Uh, so, Congressman, I want to read back to you a quote that you gave in January about the upcoming elections. If I hear you correctly, you think it could be close, you know, Democrats may not do as bad. Anyway, whether you do badly or not, I want to read this back to you. I think there is a real possibility that we will see in the next two elections, get some results sent to us for ratification that's not consistent or that we're going to have to question. That's the reality of the situation. We can no longer pretend like these elections are just going to proceed the way they have in the past. To some ears, mine included... That sounded, Congressman, as if you were preemptively inserting doubt into the reliability of the midterm elections. I will tell you, sir, I consider that a dangerous practice for any politician, Republican or Democrat. And I only say that because I spent all of last year and the year before that working with election officials at the local and state level who try to do this work in a professional, nonpartisan way, and they feel besieged, absolutely besieged and Terrorized, in certain respects, is not too strong a word. And so I want to ask anyone who, to my ear, sounds as if they're preemptively suggesting things may not be verifiable when these professionals are trying to do exactly that, what you meant by that. Yeah. 
Well, I meant clearly uh, election subversion, which is the idea that regardless of what the good work that's done by our election officials, and I applaud them. I have several bills that were included in the uh, For the People Act and then the Senate version that Joe Manchin uh, was leading uh, to try and increase protections for election workers and uh, to give them the same protections that are afforded to voters uh, to you know, make sure they can't be harassed and they can't be removed arbitrarily. That's my legislation to do that. The issue that we're seeing around the country uh, is you know, candidates running for secretaries of state's positions uh, and for other election observer positions, whether it's local or at the state level, uh, that are running on the idea that if it doesn't, the result doesn't come back the way they want it, they may try and change that result. Uh, and that's what we're seeing, you know, whether it's Arizona or Michigan, uh, you, you can look across the country and see people who are running saying, you know, particularly for 2024, uh, that, you know, they said in the last election, they would not have sent the electors, you know, uh, that that uh, the results, you know, demanded uh, that they would have overturned that result or that they're seeking the power to overturn that result. And so those partisan actors in these nonpartisan positions are actively saying in the news every single day uh, that they uh, don't believe that certain votes uh, you know, are, should be counted, that certain types of voters are, you know, are, are fraudulent, and they may see that as cause to try and reach into local elections. And so you know, that's my concern. Look at a state like Georgia, uh, where they've replaced the, you know, the Fulton County elections officials uh, which is, you know, where Atlanta and you know, heavily African-American community. Uh, and uh, it's clear that they've put in place people who are going to question or at least make it more difficult for certain communities there to vote. And so the question that I think we have to, to ask ourselves is, uh, is, you know, first of all, we have to try and not agonize over it, but organize to overcome it. Uh, but mm -hmm. should this happen, should someone actually try to do what they've been saying they want to do and change a result? And what is the Congress's response going to be? What is what are the courts uh, going to do about that? Because it's been too openly discussed for us to pretend like it's not uh, been entered into the American political bloodstream. I certainly am not questioning the validity of elections. I believe that uh, whether we Democrats win or lose, I, you know, we accept the results and we move on. Uh, but I think there are a lot of dangerous people who are saying out in the open that they do want to change results. And that's some, that's what I was referring to. So you mentioned Fulton County, and I want to dig just slightly deeper into that because whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and the racial composition of Fulton County is a well-known, established demographic fact, but also well-established is basic election administration problems in Fulton County that have gone on for quite a number of years, that even Democrats have said, you know, this could be tightened up, this could be better. I had a long conversation with Brad Raffensperger, celebrated by many on the left for doing the right thing because he ignored President Trump's repeated badgering to change the outcome in Georgia. And he said, look, Fulton County had some issues. And just because those people have been replaced doesn't mean those issues weren't valid and real. So I just want to push back a little bit and say, just because it's Fulton County doesn't mean Fulton County was doing great elections all along. There were issues there. Well, you know, I was a voting rights lawyer uh, before I came to Congress and I worked in this mm -hmm. field. And I can tell you there's no major city in the country that does not have some issues with elections, uh, the okay. election administration of them, because it's it's a lot of people and they're they're working with you know retired folks, they're working with you know very little resources, uh, and so I find it to be a little bit uh, interesting though that it's Republicans always interested in changing who's taking control of these local elections where there are black voters or heavily Democratic voters, uh, and that it's not just you know that they want to increase resources and help them do that job. 
what they want to do is put in place people who you know they think will do the right thing, quote unquote. And, and you know, I don't think it should be a partisan act, and I don't think they should be installing partisan actors to do those things. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's certainly true that in every you know, major city across the country, uh, you know, that there are going to be some difficulties in election day. I've run poll watcher programs; I know all about those. Uh, but what we're seeing there, I think, is not a response that's not commensurate with the issue. And it actually is not going to help. If they want to help them, give them more resources, give them more polling places, give them more polling workers. If uh, the law in Texas is followed, do you believe the results at this midterm election will be verified and verifiable and acceptable? Well, I think that's, you know, let's let's separate the two really quickly because I think they'll be verified and acceptable. Um, but that doesn't mean that the election will have been conducted in a way that was fair and equitable for every voter. Uh, And so what we're seeing right now in Texas is extremely high rejection rates for vote by mail applications because of a change to the state law around how you can apply for a vote by mail ballot. Now, this is that's that's complicating the primary right now, right 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 as we're talking right now. And and it's particularly for low information voters, uh, folks who have a lot going on in their lives. It's very difficult to comply with. And to, to vote by mail in Texas is already difficult. You have to be either 65 or older or disabled uh, or out of town for the entire voting period. And so that's, you're talking about students, you're talking about people with disabilities, you're talking about seniors. Uh, and these are folks who I think, you know, are clearly we're already seeing are being impacted by this. And so, you know, how legitimate is any election where you've made it more t- tougher for people to vote? I think we still accept the results, but we try and change that so it's not so difficult. Uh, that being said, you know, we do have a new secretary of state now who I, I don't have a lot of confidence in. Uh, he was part of the legal case to try and overturn the election results in Pennsylvania. Uh, and then our governor appointed him to be our secretary of state. This will be the first election that he has overseen. I've already seen his office saying that they've run out of uh, the paper used for voter registration forms. Uh, they are not working and responding as quickly to local election officials from what I've been hearing and reading uh, to their questions. I don't know what's going on in that office. I don't know if it's you know, incompetence or if it's on purpose, but it certainly gives me some questions. Do you suspect that they're intentionally slow walking their service? You know, I can't say that yet, uh, but I certainly uh, think that this is someone who came into this job with the reputation of having been a part of the big lie, so to speak, that the last election was fraudulent. Uh, and that is you know, certainly uh, aggressively pursuing, uh, you know, I, I think this kind of strategy of making vote, voting by mail difficult. Now, whether or not, you know, they're purposely doing things, I think that I'm going to have to see a little more evidence to get into that. But I am concerned. So uh, you might have read something about it. Former Vice President Pence went before the Federalist Society not too long ago and said President Trump was wrong. I did not have the authority to overturn the election. And Kamala Harris won't have the authority to overturn the election when we beat them in 2024. Setting aside the uh, sort of... uh, bristling partisanship there. Do you agree that no vice president has any constitutional authority on that January 6th day to do anything other than to ceremonially observe the certification of electoral votes? I do. And I think that this is something that was not in question uh, for you know hundreds of years in our history. Uh, but I do think that we should tighten up that law. Uh, it, it is. It is. In what way? Well, I think we have to clarify the vice president's role that it is, as you said, ceremonial. That it's not discretionary. Uh, I, I think that's already implied, but it's clear from the the the, the memo that was written uh, by the Trump team uh, that they thought there was an opening there. But you know, th- there's of course there'd never be an intention to allow any vice president to decide whether or not we're going to remain a democracy in any context. I mean, that's that's right. ridiculous, and I I find it a little bit. I think 
Vice President Pence's reference to be on point in one way in that, you know, do you want Kamala Harris to have this power? Do you want, you know, uh, Joe Biden previously, Al Gore previously to have had this power? No, I mean, it's ridiculous to say that it's power for me, but not for you. Uh, and I wasn't alive at the time, but Richard Nixon didn't wield that right, power right. in his benefit either in 1961. I'm oh. Major Garrett Colin Howard as our special guest. Yeah. Segment for The Takeout in just one second. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. I promised you the Ukraine conversation. Eight minutes, if not less, on Ukraine. But at least that here will be the focus of our fourth segment. So, Congressman Colin Allred, you were there recently. Again, this is the 15th of February. So, in two days, if something really dramatic happens, we will not be able to comment on that. But where do you think things are now? What are your fears and anxieties in the next week or so? Yeah, I, well, I think things are as tense as they possibly can be. And unfortunately, Major, I, I do think there's a high, high likelihood that by the time your listeners see this, we will be talking about uh, an invasion of Ukraine. We will. I, I do. I'm, I'm very worried about that. I think that the timeline that we've been told is uh, very rapid. So I, barring some change, I, I think that may happen. And when you say we've been told, explain to our audience what that means. Well, you know, obviously, I think the, the administration has been very forthright and, and public about, uh, you know, their kind of intercepts of, of what they're seeing from the Russians. Uh, and, you know, I think even... And members of Congress have been briefed. We've been briefed. Effect. And so I don't think that we're, I'm speaking out of turn when I say that you know, you know, our intelligence assessments are that we think that uh, the Russians have decided to go in uh, and we're hoping to dissuade them still, uh, but that that decision has been reached and it, it is only a question of when. So uh, how does the world change if that happens? Well, I, I, you know, I think that's the right term, actually, Major, that the world does change immediately. Um, you know, I just think that we are not used to uh, seeing uh, since, you know, a bygone era, the idea of a, a democratic state being invaded by an autocratic neighbor. This is, you know, particularly in Europe, uh, this is something that we have not seen, obviously, since the days of World War II. Uh, and, you know, the Russians, uh, I think, are, are miscalculating what they think the, the international response will be. Uh, I think they, I think Vladimir Putin is increasingly isolated and surrounded by a group of uh, yes men who are not telling him the truth. And I also think he's not understanding what's happened in Ukraine since 2014 and, and the way they have separated themselves from uh, a previous Russian identity. But for us, as you know, I think the leader of the, of the free world, it's a real test. It's a real test in, in that we have to now gather all of the you know, democracies, all of the, our allies in the EU and, and NATO uh, to make Russia you know, into a, a international pariah, to, you know, to shut down their economy as much as possible, uh, to make this a strategic failure for, for Vladimir Putin. You were there recently. Uh, what would you say is the overall spirit of the Ukrainians? Uh, clearly, they cannot repel a, a mechanized Russian invasion that also includes cyber attacks and aerial bombardment. But they can make life incredibly difficult, bloody, 
and costly for an occupying force. What's your sense? I think that's exactly what they're going to do. I think that they are determined. I, I think that this is not the same thing as Eastern Ukraine where, you know, and Crimea, where there were a lot of pro-Russian sentiments still there. Uh, you know, Kiev, for example, is an extremely modern Western city that you know, Beautiful. does not want to see itself become, you know, the site of a, you know, a Moscow 2.0. They've already overthrown one Russian puppet, uh, you know, in recent history. And so should Putin try to install a new government, I think they will do so again. But going to the resistance uh, and to your point about the military confrontation here, you're right. Ukraine has no ability in terms of military to military to withstand this level of an onslaught. They don't have an air force. Uh, they don't have you know the sophisticated missile defense systems. Um, but they do have, and I think they've developed uh, a much more uh, more robust uh, army and military than they had in 2014 when it kind of melted away in front of the Russians and had to be replaced by militias. That's no longer the case. They have now, I think, basically activated their populace in a way that is is um, in some ways inspiring. That they're going to try and fight for their country. But you're right. I mean, this is a large country you know, uh, with a lot of people in it, it's not one that it would be an easy occupation. Uh, and I think they're going to fight. And I think they're going to try and make this as difficult as possible for the Russians. And what we have to do is support them in that. Um, and we have to support them militarily with the hardware to do that economically. And also in terms of the punitive side, make it so painful for Russia uh, that this is something that they withdraw from. Do you believe in the last month or two, Europe has come around on that point of view? Because it was not hard, Congressman, to detect a couple of months ago, not ambivalence, but a certain reluctance in European capitals to go to the mattresses, if you will, to use an Americanism, if Russia invaded. It feels like Europe has come around a little bit more on that. Yeah, you're very right. I mean, we have some uh, allies who unfortunately have become too energy dependent on Russia, uh, and particularly at the height of winter have been reluctant, I think, uh, to really put their foot down and to be forceful. Uh, but I think the prospect of this has been imparted to them as well. And, and I think the moment that you know, a Russian tank crosses uh, you know, into U Ukraine, I think that something is going to switch in the European mind as well. I really do. Uh, and so I think we'll see, we've had good discussions up to now, but I think we'll see even more cooperation if that does occur. And unfortunately, I think it's probably when that does occur. Um, but whether it's the Germans uh, who have been, you know, I think the kind of most prominent in terms of being reluctant, uh, or even the French, who I think for some time have not believed this is going to happen, I think it's been imparted to them, and they're starting to recognize that, that we are likely here. You are walking into a restaurant in your district in suburban Dallas, and someone says, Congressman, what are the stakes for me in Ukraine? What do you tell them? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think this is, it's such a good question, because uh, it seems like, you know what? What role? What 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 skin do we have in this game? And and I really believe the number one, uh, as you know, the leaders of the free world, we can't allow this to happen. But number two, that this is part of an international, global movement uh, to try and uh, you know, peel back democracies, whether it's you know, Hong Kong uh, and Taiwan, uh, or whether it's Ukraine, or whether it's even folks here at home who, as I said earlier, you know, I think have tried in many ways to undermine our faith in our elections and and try to promote, I think, an alternative view. Uh, and one that is not consistent with who we are, and that we have to push back on this in, in every context. We have to push back on it internationally, we have to push back on it at home, uh, that you know, it's not necessarily true that the last century was one of expanding democracies, and this one will be as well. You know, unless we do something about it, 
we could see us you know, enter a new era of autocracy. And I'll, I'll also say this, the Russians won't stop with Ukraine. Uh, if they are successfully able to do this, this will spread to some of the Baltic states, this will spread into Eastern Europe. They'll try to reconstitute the Soviet Union. That's what Putin has said he wants to do. That's not, we're not, I'm not making a prediction there. That's what he's said before. He, he thinks the, the, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the fall of the Soviet Union and that he wants to restore that glory. So, you know, I, I think we have to recognize it's not going to stop there. Uh, and also that we have a vested interest in seeing, uh, you know, uh, self-determination went out. The idea that you should be able to, you know, if you want to elect leaders of your own choice, pursue your own path, and that the United States has an interest in seeing that around the world and that we should stand up and protect it. So, you know, the Ukrainians don't want American boots on the ground. They've not asked for that. When I was there, they were very clear. They want the tools to fight for themselves, but we can support them in a lot of other ways. And to the Russian assertion that it has been the West and NATO that has been provocative by trying to pull Ukraine into its sphere, you would say what? Yeah. Well, Ukraine is a sovereign country uh, and they've made their own decisions and they overthrew uh, in 2014, you know, a, a Russian puppet who was trying to, who went back on a commitment to try and you know, increase ties to the EU. And they, they elected leaders specifically on the promise that they would pursue NATO membership, that they would pursue EU membership, and that's what they've tried to do. That's how democracies work, you know. And if the people didn't want that, then they can vote for different uh, uh, leaders. And you know, there's been a recent poll uh, of Ukrainians that had seven and ten Ukrainians want to join NATO. You know, that's that's their their self determination of what they want. Now, whether or not sovereignty. we want to do that is going to have to be a different question. But right, sovereignty it matters. That's the voice of Colin Allred. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For those on CBS News streaming and on the podcast platform, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Colin Allred is our special guest, Democratic Congressman, 32nd District of the great state of Texas. So, uh, as you well know, Congressman, this is the uh, fun and games part of the program. Three threshold questions we've asked every single guest who's been kind enough to appear here with me on The Takeout. So, take these questions in whichever order you prefer. I tend to ask them in the very same way, so you can mix it up. Uh, most influential book in your life or one of the most influential books? All-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? And Texas is a very big place. I've been there, worked there twice, Amarillo and Houston. So I know on a long drive, you've got lots of time to listen to music. So if you're on one of those long drives, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Sure. Okay. So uh, what's the first one, the most influential book, um, I, I'd have to say, I still say that The Count of Monte Cristo is like the first kind of uh you know novel that really grabbed me and um i think we had to read it in school and i actually did read it which you know i didn't always do sometimes and that, that one was, <laughs> was uh for those for those who may not be familiar give them a quick synopsis of the story yeah so it's it's uh, basically set in uh you know napoleonic era france uh a young man is 
framed for having uh, trying to help the emperor uh, Napoleon come back. He goes to prison, uh, is told by his cellmate about this fantastic treasure. He goes and gets the treasure and comes back as the Count of Monte Cristo, which is like these rocks out in the in the water, uh, and pursues basically <laughs> vengeance in some ways against the people who wronged him. So, right, yeah. right. It's it it's it's a heck of a yarn, as they say. <laughs> yeah. Um. And uh, favorite movie. Favorite movie. You know, that that's tough. I, you know, for me, I, I think remember the, t- uh, the Titans. Um, I just love that movie, uh, you know, being a football player uh, yep. and kind of, you know, this idea of these two schools having to merge and, you know, become integrated uh, and Denzel Washington, I mean, you can't really go wrong. So, no. And, and it's it, when his um, career is re is re re uh, highlighted or highlights of his career are that, that movie falls out of the list and i think it's right near the top of his yes. acting achievements i think he's so powerful because he's so subtle in that role yes. i really think he's amazing in that and that one that should be in when if, you, if you're recounting denzel's great work you got to have that in the top three or four in I my think opinion. so yeah he's very powerful in it. yeah and uh music well you know if you come to texas you have to listen to willie if you're going to be driving around <laughs> on some you know put on the road on the road again and i literally have done this major when i was in iowa uh, for for Biden, which didn't go very well, as you know. No, uh, but <laughs> driving through it was spectacularly bad. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I helped much. But driving through the uh, the frozen fields there, I made them put on on the road again. You know, Willie Nelson and just have a little bit of Texas. And uh, but yeah, I think that there's no better way to drive through Texas than to put that on. So, mm-hmm. uh, other football movies that you think get it right? Oh, uh, let's see. That's a good one. Um, Hmm. I think the 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 gameplay action is probably the best in any given Sunday. I think some of the other stuff is yes. a little bit, you know, Hollywoodized and uh, uh, you know, but the gameplay, you know, the way it's so frenetic and so violent, you know, like that's definitely true. Um, I'm trying to think of what others. Um, hmm. Yeah, Rudy, uh, I, you know, I. How about the re- uh, how about the replacements? The replacements, yeah, you know. I, that's a good one. Um, the kicker smoking is funny to me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I guess our kicker could have done that though. I mean, it didn't have much of a job, so I guess it's possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, and uh, and Keanu gets a great line in that movie, uh, if I remember it correctly: "Bruises heal, chicks dig scars, and glory is forever." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although um, some of the 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 players in that didn't look like they could get through a game to me i'll just do that. <laughs> <laughs> and you and you can't leave out the uh ultimate football tear jerker of all football tear jerkers brian song oh yeah yeah of course yeah there's that's a good one friday night lights is a good one. yeah I mean, there's, there's a bunch of good ones yeah you're right um so when you get back to dc what is the biggest priority for you the next couple of months yeah well, I, I do think that we should continue to pursue what they're doing in the Senate with the Electoral Count Act. Um, I'm hoping that we can pick up some of the pieces of Build Back Better and, and pass those, particularly the ones that pertain to families, uh, whether that's you know, child care um, or pre-K. For me, if we if we were able to do something on pre-K, that would be as impactful as anything we do. I, I think it's one of the best investments um, that we make. Um, and, you know, certainly... Uh, you know, I think on the foreign affairs side, we have to continue to to gather the world. And so, you know, I'm hoping that uh, whether it's a sanctions package or uh, just, you know, uh, 
you know, diplomacy that we can make sure that we don't come to a, a brinksmanship like this again. I think there's a lot of work to do. So. That is the voice of Colin Alred, our special guest Democratic Congressman, 32nd District, Great State of Texas. It's been a pleasure, sir. We'll see you around Capitol Hill. Okay. Thanks so much, Major. Thanks. We'll see you. That's it, folks. See you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.